Time now to welcome in Brandon Huffman, National Recruiting Editor for 24-7 Sports. He joins us on the Sprint Special Guest Line. Lease any phone and get an iPad or Samsung Tab A for $99.99. Visit the Sprint store nearest you. Brandon, good morning. Hey, good. How are you guys doing? Good. Curious your take on the, the changes in recruiting with the new early date. We're used to the February date, but now we have the December one. Kyle Whittingham here has said that, uh, you know, from the get-go, 50% of the recruits took advantage of the early signing. He says now it's up 80 90%. And we're also finding, though, if you're not in the Power Five, maybe you're hanging back and February's still a bigger deal for you. That seems to be how it's playing out in Utah. Is that how it's playing out across the rest of the country? It is, and especially schools that had a coaching change, whether it was before the early signing period or even may have had one after the signing period, those are the ones that tend to be filling out their classes by tomorrow. But, yeah, I would say the majority of schools have signed their classes. I think there's you know six or seven Pac-12 schools that I know for sure. When they hit the road the last two weeks, it was just to look at 21 and 22 kids instead of 2020. Their chapter of this book is done, and they're moving on to the next class. So how does the Utes compare to the rest of the Pac-12? Well, I think in the case of the Utes, I mean, they kind of took advantage of the early signing period, meaning that a lot of their activities seemed to happen on that Thursday and Friday after. So they still ended up with a good chunk of guys that were a part of that first initial class in December. Uh, but then at this point right now, I think they only had – you know, 14 guys signed letter of intent, or 16 guys, two of them already enrolled. And so they've got about four or five more guys that have committed since then. And then they've also got some transfers that have come in. So I would say that probably Utah and Washington State have been the most active post the December signing period. In Washington State's case, they didn't sign a huge class to begin with. And then when Mike Leach left, they only had one guy asked out of his letter of intent, but Nick Rolovich is trying to fill up the class with a bunch of more guys that he was targeting when he was at Hawaii. So I would say Utah and Washington State are really the only two that have a lot of action going by tomorrow. So you bring up transfers, and you know people are going to go back and look. If you have, people haven't been to your website, you do a good job of breaking stuff down in previous years and by school and high school recruits by state. So it really lends itself to people going back and analyzing and seeing who hit and were the rankings right and all that. But the whole X factor now is there's so many transfers. Are you going to try and grade that out, or is that just a separate thing aside from recruiting and recruiting isn't as important the more transfers we have? How's that all going to shake out for you? I think you'll eventually see a time where transfers may factor into the rankings a little bit more. I don't know how that's done. I mean, is it a guy who transfers – He's been a three- or four-year starter, decides he wants to do you know, grad school at a different program, maybe a bigger program, but he was an impact guy, a guy like a K.J. Costello, leaving Stanford as a three-year starter and going to Mississippi State. That would be what I consider an impact transfer. But then, you know, you have guys that leave because they haven't gotten on the field in three or four years. They end up at a school who has an absolute dire need at that position, and the guy becomes very, very valuable to them despite not really having proven anything on the field in four years. How do you factor that in? So I, I think at some point there may be a way to factor them in, but I just think it's the nature of the beast. And, and I don't necessarily think that the transfers are any different than they were before. It's just now they're much more public because of the portal rather than in the old days when schools were able to block a kid and basically bully the kid into staying. Can you give us a ranking in the Pac-12, maybe the top five or six? Top five or six transfers coming in? No, no, uh, just overall recruiting. 
Oh, gotcha. Yeah, I would say, you know, the, the top five recruits coming into the Pac-12, probably Oregon's got the top two with Justin Flo and Noah Sewell coming in, the top inside linebacker, one-two punch, and, and the Pac-12's probably seen in, you know, 20 years. Uh, Washington has a very elite receiver in Jalen McMillan coming in. Utah has one of the best corners in the country in Clark Phillips, so they were able to flip from Ohio State. He's already on campus. you got him already there. Uh, and then you have uh, you know, some guys that are committed to Stanford. Stanford, again, has a very strong class, and, and that group is led by one of the top players in, in all of the country, in John Humphrey, a receiver out of Southern California. And then they got a running back whose dad did a little damage in the NFL, a kid named E.J. Smith, who's from Dallas. Hmm. I think we all could figure out who, who the father is there. But, you know, between E.J. Smith, Barry Sanders Jr., Christian McCaffrey, I would say Stanford continues their run of pulling in some very nice legacies in the backfield. So, uh, yeah, we all watched uh, EJ commit there, and Emmett was sitting right next to him, so that was nice. So now you get these high-end guys, and certainly you need those, but you also need depth. So now rank the top five or six schools, and we'll all be listening for where you put USC because we didn't hear those letters <laughs> in the last answer. How do you rank the top five or six schools in the Pac-12? Well, if you're only giving me five or six, we will not hear USC again because they are – not even in single digits. We got Oregon at the top, Washington number two, Stanford number three, Arizona State number four, and Utah number five. All five of those schools are, are I think, you know, very excited with what they've been able to do. I think with the exception of Stanford, you know, Utah and Arizona State, Oregon all capitalizing on really good seasons this year. Washington had kind of a down year, but they've had enough momentum built under Chris Peterson that they didn't lose a single recruit once he announced his retirement from Washington. Stanford continues to recruit nationally, so we'll see if the 2019 season was a little bit of an aberration. Uh, you know, Utah's been probably the most fascinating, though, and I'm not just saying that because that's where I'm on. It, it really is fascinating because of where they started Probably the beginning of December, if you look at the days leading up to the Pac-12 championship game, Utah was in double digits in the Pac-12. And then the way they closed between flipping Clark Phillips, which was obviously huge for them, but then landing so many key in-state guys, Dan Fillinger, Xavier Carlton, Nate Ritchie, going out into Hawaii and getting a four-star offensive lineman in Solotoa, Moaie out of Punahou. Um, you know, those were key pickups for them. But then also, they too, We've got a couple of key transfers in the Jake Bentley, and then you've got some of the commits that they've landed since then. You know, Keanu Tunnebasso, Polynesian All-American, out of Mission Diego, Fabian Marks out of Texas. I like how Utah is closing. They closed really well in the December signing period. They're closing again well right now. So do you factor in these grad transfers when you do your recruiting rankings? Yeah, we in some ways, capacity, you, you have to. I don't know how much of it is in a numerical way. There's some grad transfers that actually have a rating uh, on them, and those are guys like a case like a Jake Bentley who was rated out of the transfer. He was a three-year starter at South Carolina. He's a guy you have to factor in. But I'm still trying to figure out the engineering side of it, just how much those guys, if they actually factor into the rankings or if they just earn some kind of rating as a graduate transfer. Because if that was the case, Oregon State's class would end up being ranked pretty high. Nobody has hit the transfer pole harder than Oregon State has in the last two years. So in the case of like a guy like Jake Bentley, he's rated as a four-star, as a transfer. Skyler Sussman rated as a three-star, as a transfer. But I don't believe either of those factor into the overall team ranking just because they're transfers and not incoming recruits. Is Jim Moore making uh, headway – or Jim Moore um, – 
thank you. Chip Kelly making headway at UCLA? Uh, you know, it's hard to tell because their recruiting is so much different than Jim Moore. I mean, Jim Moore would offer a ton of guys, get a lot of early interest, get a lot of guys that were local, get a lot of guys that were national, and then they didn't seem to put out a great product on the field. Chip Kelly has a completely different recruiting approach. At one point in this recruiting cycle, only Stanford had offered less players in the country out of the Power Five schools than UCLA. They kind of went a little bit more of this deliberate approach, and it didn't necessarily work all that great. Then they had a little bit of momentum in the middle of the season when they won a couple games in a row and ended up landing about eight commits in about a two-week span, including a couple from Georgia, three guys from St. John Bosco in Southern California. So there appears to be a little momentum. They're actually just behind Utah in the top tw- or in the uh, top of the Pac-12 team rankings. Uh, but there doesn't seem to be the star power like some of the Jim Moore classes we were used to. There's only two players that are in the top 247 that are committed to UCLA. So when you look at UCLA and USC's recruiting, and you consider that they're both in, you know one of the most bountiful and plentiful recruiting uh, you know, crops in the United States, for them to be 6th and 10th respectively in the Pac-12, you know, is a... That's why both those coaches are drawing some criticism from their fans and from the media because they're not putting great products on the field and they're backing it up by not having great recruiting efforts to show for. From your view, what makes a coach a good recruiter? To me, it's a couple of things. One, it's having a very good, smart plan in place. And whether that's, you know, being active on social media, being active and sending your coaches out, making a, a big deal of when your coaches hit the road, when you're, you know, a visible face on high school campuses, when guys are taking unofficial visits and you see the head coach just as much as you see the recruit on the unofficial visit, you know that that coach has a good plan. You look at a guy like Mario Cristobal and what he's done at Oregon. I mean, there, there's, you know, a reason he was the pack, or I'm sorry, the national recruit of the year a couple of times when he was at Alabama as the offensive line coach. He's brought that mentality to the Pac-12 and really kind of, uh, you know, commanded that his assistant coaches be aggressive recruiters, form these relationships. When you talk to a kid and you visit Oregon, he talks about the energy he feels from the coaching staff on that visit. So it's something that trickles down from the head coach and his entire assistant coaching staff. And then the admin and the staffers that are all a part of the recruiting process, they're just as involved. That, to me, is a coach that's a good recruiter that understands how important recruiting is to it. You can't just be an X's and O's guy if you're a college coach. You've got to be able to recruit. You've got to be able to you know, communicate and, and you know, hit it off with these guys because they're the ones that are giving you the next four or five years of your life. You have to be able to relate to mom and dad or grandma and grandpa or whoever is involved in the recruiting process. And you have a lot of coaches that just want to be these mad scientists and college football coaches, but they don't cultivate the relationships. And then they wonder why, or their fan base wonders why they're not getting great recruits. It's because the coaches aren't doing anything to really make that kid feel welcome. And that's what recruiting is so much is. It's just making the kid feel like that's the place he wants to be, that he's comfortable being there. BYU's scheduling more Power 5 teams going forward. Are they recruiting well enough to play that schedule? And I guess secondarily, do you feel like you can really evaluate it that well with so many guys going on missions? Does it become a little, a little too tricky to say anything definitive? 
Well, it's not as hard because you still see a lot of the guys that are coming back. They weren't. It wasn't that long ago that they were in part of the recruiting process, so you remember them. Even the guys that are leaving now to, to maybe not return until the 2022 season, you still are able to evaluate them, but you then do it with the caveat that these guys are going to be a couple years older, maybe bigger, stronger, or, or whatever when they return. So, you know, you do factor that in, in in some case, but you also see there's enough guys that are coming in this class that are expecting to play right away. So a guy like a Cody S who's coming out of modern day high school, nobody in the country played a tougher schedule than modern day this last year over the last three seasons. They won two national championships and they were number two this year after beating St. John Bosco, who ended up winning it all. Cody Epps was their featured receiver this year. His teammate Bryce Young was going to Alabama, was the national player of the year. So Cody Epps was a big-time target who's been going up against elite DBs every single week. That's the kind of guy that's going to be able to come in and have an impact early on. Then you get a guy like Micah Harper, a three-star corner out of Arizona who's very, very good. He's a flyer. He, he can absolutely run. you got some guys that are in the Juco rink there, Chris Jackson, who you're bringing in to expect to play right now. So there, there's enough guys coming in that are going to be on campus and playing this fall that I, I think they absolutely, when we factor in the returning missionaries, they, they absolutely can compete against that national schedule. And obviously the key is continuing to recruit well at the quarterback position so you at least have the offensive firepower to compete with those teams in your schedule. So what's the deal with SC then? <laughs> That's the million-dollar question because it wasn't just two, three years ago where USC finished the top five class. It wasn't you know three years ago that they were number one in the, in the Pac-12 and closed – incredibly well, but then you spend an entire year with the worry of Clay Helton. Is he going to be fired? Is he going to be retained? And then the extended wait, even a week after the season, when there was still a possibility USC could win the South if Utah were to lose their final Pac-12 game. So USC kind of forced their, their own hand, and a lot of the top players in Southern California are leaving not just the state of California. They're leaving the region altogether. They're leaving the Pac-12 footprint. And USC, those are players they would have normally have signed. Justin Flo, a DJ, or a Bryce, the, the two best quarterbacks in the country. Those are players that USC typically would have signed. But now you've got a lame duck coaching staff for now a second year, a lot of transition on those coaching staffs, and not much stability. So USC ends up in a situation where they've only got 12 commits, four already on campus. They've got eight other commits. And then last night they ended up getting a commitment from Jack Yari. Now, what was fascinating about Jack Yari is this is a USC legacy. His dad was the number one pick in the NFL draft. He's an NFL Hall of Famer. He's a college football Hall of Famer. He's the son of a USC alum. He committed to USC and then decommitted. USC was able to get him back in the fold, but one of his big questions when he decommitted was, A, how are they going to use a tight end in their offense? And B, is Clay Helton even going to be here to coach me? So when you've got even the legacies, the ones that normally wouldn't have needed really much of any reason to go there, even they're questioning their decision to go to USC. That puts USC in the predicament when they're in where they're number 10 in the conference, not number 10 in the country. All right, well, you paint quite the picture there, and uh, I guess the good news for SC is they got enough talent coming back. They ought to be good this year, even if they got to pay the piper down the line. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, it's one of those cases, too, where is this a exception or is this becoming the rule? You know, and that's where I think the rest of the Pac-12 kind of has to look at this entire process now. If there's ever a time to really hit Southern California hard, if there's ever a time to really – 
take the dominance away from something from USC and UCLA in a sense in recruiting. It's right now because players have never left more in the droves that they've left this year. Look at a guy like Clark Phillips. I mean, Utah gets him. He's an Ohio State commit for months and then commits to Utah and then ends up on campus. I mean, that's kind of where we're at in the Pac-12 where you dub Oregon, USC, and Arizona State really are recruiting and almost in a sense picking who they want rather than having to go in and really try to have a tough battle against an SC or UCLA. Brandon Huffman, National Recruiting Editor for 24-7 Sports. Brandon, thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys.